What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Fact Hunter Radio Network. Everything you've ever been told is a lie. Everything you've been taught about life is a lie. Pursuit of a dream. Delmarva Studios proudly presents The Fact Hunter with your host, George Hobbs. Come join the show that is glad to be a part of the ever growing truth movement. The Fact Hunter questions everything, refuses to be indoctrinated, and is a no sheep zone. Email us at thefacthunter at mail.com. You can also visit our new website at thefacthunter.com. And we are now on Twitter at thefacthunter. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the fact hunter himself, George Hobbs. Just the facts, ma'am. Hey, what's going on, everybody? How are you? Good. Hope everything's going well. Welcome back. It's the Fact Hunter, George Hobbs. Uh, we are moving right along with chapters four and five from Eustace Mullins' Murder by Injection, the story of the medical conspiracy against America. Chapter four covers the highly talked about vaccination uh, subject, which everybody is talking about these days, and chapter five, uh, the fluoride conspiracy. So, uh, very, very interesting uh, next two chapters. So for the next hour and uh, about 10 minutes, here we go. Enjoy. Chapter 4, Vaccination. One of the few doctors who has dared to speak out against the medical monopoly, Dr. Robert S. Mendelssohn, dramatized his stand against modern medicine by defining it as a church which has four holy waters. The first of these, he listed as vaccination. Dr. Mendelssohn termed vaccination of questionable safety. However, other doctors have been more explicit. It is notable that the Rockefeller interests have fought throughout the 19th century to make these four holy waters compulsory throughout the United States, ignoring all the protests and warnings of their dangers. Of these four items, which might well be termed the four horsemen of the apocalypse, because they too are known to bring death and destruction in their wake, the most pernicious in its long-term effects may well be the practice of immunization. 
This practice goes directly against the discovery of modern holistic medical experts that the body has a natural immune defense against illness. The Church of Modern Medicine claims that we can only be absolved from the peril of infection by the holy water of vaccination, injecting into the system a foreign body of infection, which will then perform a medical miracle, and will confer lifelong immunity, hence the term, immunization. The greatest heresy any physician can commit is to voice publicly any doubt of any one of the four holy waters, but the most deeply entrenched in modern medical practice is undoubtedly the numerous vaccination programs. They are also the most consistently profitable operations of the medical monopoly. Yet one physician, Dr. Henry R. Bybee, of Norfolk, Virginia, has publicly stated, my honest opinion is that vaccine is the cause of more disease and suffering than anything I could name. I believe that such diseases as cancer, syphilis, cold sores and many other disease conditions are the direct results of vaccination. Yet, in the state of Virginia, and in many other states, parents are compelled to submit their children to this procedure while the medical profession not only receives its pay for this service, but also makes splendid and prospective patients for the future. The present writer well remembers the 1920s, as a child in Virginia, going to school for some weeks without having submitted to the compulsory vaccination ordered by the state authorities. Each morning, the teacher would begin the day's classes by asking, Clarence, did you bring your vaccination certificate today? Obviously, this was the most urgent business of the educational system, taking priority over such matters as lessons and studying. Each morning, I would have to reply, no, I didn't bring it today. The other children would turn and stare at this dangerous classmate, who might infect them all with some terrible disease. My mother had been a registered nurse, and she never urged me to go ahead with my vaccination. I suspect she knew more than the doctors about its possible effects. After postponing the dreaded ordeal for some weeks, I was finally led to the doctor like an animal being led up the plank to be stunned, and I received my injection. Of course it made me extremely ill, as my body fought the infection, but the class was delivered from peril, and I was accepted as a duly branded member of society. In The Curse of Canaan, I wrote of the deliverance of our children up for ritual sacrifice, a practice which seemingly ended with the destruction of the Baal cult some 5,000 years ago. Unfortunately, the cult of Baal seems to be firmly entrenched in the present establishment, which is often known by the sobriquet, the Brotherhood of Death. It is disturbing to see how the educationists eagerly embrace each new offense against children in our schools, railing against any mention of morality or religion, while solemnly indoctrinating six-year-olds in the advantages of an alternative lifestyle in their sexual preferences. The present goal of the National Education Association seems to be that teachers should hand out condoms to the class before beginning each day's activities. The urgency of my vaccination was not that there was any epidemic then raging in the city of Roanoke, nor has there been one in the ensuing 60 years. The urgency was that no child shall be spared the ministrations of the cult of Baal, or forego sacrifice on the altar of the child molesters. The medical monopoly cannot afford to have a single pupil escape the monetary offering to be paid for the compulsory vaccination, the tribute of the enslaved to their masters. From London comes an alarming observation from a practitioner of excellent reputation and long experience. Dr. Herbert Snow, senior surgeon at the Cancer Hospital of London, voiced his concern, in recent years many men and women in the prime of life have dropped dead suddenly, often after attending a feast or a banquet. I am convinced that some 80% of these deaths are caused by the inoculation or vaccination they have undergone. 
they are well known to cause grave and permanent disease to the heart. The coroner always hushes it up as natural causes, you cannot find any such warning in any medical textbook or popular book on health. In fact, this writer was able to locate it in a small volume buried deep in the stacks of the Library of Congress. Yet such an ominous observation from an established medical practitioner should be as widely circulated as possible, if only to be attached by those who can refute its premise. At least it cannot be attacked by the establishment as quackery, because Dr. Snow is not attempting to sell some substitute for vaccination, but merely warning of its dangers. Another practitioner, Dr. W. B. Clark of Indiana, finds that cancer was practically unknown until compulsory vaccination with cowpox vaccine began to be introduced. I have had to deal with at least 200 cases of cancer, and I never saw a case of cancer in an unvaccinated person. At last, we have the breakthrough for which the American Cancer Society has been searching, at such great expense, and for so many years. Dr. Clark has never seen a case of cancer in an unvaccinated person. Is not this a lead which should be explored? With such an impetus, the ACS could once again get the telephone banks ringing in the fundraising drives, to initiate positive research as to the possible connection between vaccination and the incidence of cancer. Somehow, we suspect that ACS will not follow this lead. It would also look well etched in stone above the imposing entrance to the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, I never saw a case of cancer in an unvaccinated person. However, it is unlikely that the high priests of modern medicine will be able to give up one of the four commandments. It will be necessary for an outraged public to bring pressure to bear to abandon the modern ritual of sacrificing our children to Baal in a 5,000-year-old ritual called, in its modern version, compulsory immunization, in the land where freedom rings, or is supposed to ring, it is even more surprising to find that every citizen is compelled to submit to a compulsory vaccination ritual. Here again, we are speaking of a civilization which is now being visited by two plagues, the plague of cancer and the plague of AIDS, yet compulsory vaccination offers no protection against the plagues which threaten us. It is goodbye whooping cough, goodbye diphtheria and hello AIDS. The medical monopoly is searching desperately for some type of immunization against these plagues, and no doubt will eventually come up with some type of vaccine which will be more dreadful than the disease. From the outset, our most distinguished medical experts have proudly informed us that AIDS is incurable, which is hardly the approach we expect from those who demand that we accept their infallibility in all things to do with medicine. Another well-known medical practitioner, Dr. J. M. Peebles of San Francisco, has written a book on vaccine, in which he says, the vaccination practice, pushed to the front on all occasions by the medical profession through political connivance made compulsory by the state, has not only become the chief menace and the greatest danger to the health of the rising generation, but likewise the crowning outrage upon the personal liberties of the American citizen, compulsory vaccination, poisoning the crimson currents of the human system with brute extraction lymph under the strange infatuation that it would prevent smallpox, was one of the darkest blots that disfigured the last century. Dr. Peebles refers to the fact that cowpox vaccine was one of the more peculiar inventions or discoveries of the Age of Enlightenment. However, as I have pointed out in The Curse of Canaan, the Age of Enlightenment was merely the latest program of the cult of Baal and its rituals of child sacrifice, which, in one guise or another, has now been with us for some 5,000 years. 
Because of this goal, the medical monopoly is also known as the Society for Crippling Children. Perhaps the most telling comment of Dr. Peebles' criticism is his reference to brute extracted lymph. Could there be some connection between the injection of this substance and the spread of a hitherto unknown form of cancer, cancer of the lymph glands? This type of cancer is not only one of the most commonly encountered versions of this disease, it is also one of the most difficult to treat, because it rapidly spreads throughout the entire system. A diagnosis of cancer of the lymph glands now means a virtual death sentence. If we suppose that physicians such as Dr. Snow and Dr. Peebles are trumpeting non-existent dangers when they write of vaccination, we have only to look at the court records of many cases around the country. Wyeth Laboratories was the defendant in a case in which a Wichita, Kansas jury recently awarded $15 million in damages to an eight-year-old girl. She incurred permanent brain damage after receiving a diphtheria pertussis tetanus vaccine. Michelle Graham received the immunization at the age of three months, and incurred severe brain damage which left her permanently incapacitated. Her lawyers proved that the damage was solely attributable to the vaccine, although Wyeth's lawyers attempted to deny this. Because of the financial prospects, physicians are demanding earlier vaccination for children each year. The Vaccination Committee of the American Academy of Pediatricians recently demanded that the age for children to receive flu vaccine be lowered from the previous 24 months to 18 months. They are promoting a new version of flu vaccine which was said to have been tested on children in Finland. In an article in Science, March 4, 1977, Jonas and Daryl Salk warn that, live virus vaccines against influenza or poliomyelitis may in each instance produce the disease it intended to prevent, the live virus against measles and mumps may produce such side effects as encephalitis brain damage, if vaccines present such a clear and present danger to children who are forced to submit to them, we must examine the forces which demand that they submit. In the United States, vaccines are actively and incessantly promoted as the solution for all infectious diseases by such government agencies as the Center for Disease Control in Georgia, by HU, USPHS, FDA, ARMA and WHO. It is of more than passing interest that the federal agencies should be such passionate supporters of compulsory use of vaccines, and that they also should go through the revolving door to the big drug firms whose products they have so assiduously promoted throughout the years of service to the public. It is these federal agents who have drafted the procedures which forced the states to enact compulsory vaccination legislation which had been drafted by the attorneys for the medical monopoly to become the law of the land. In the dim reaches of the past, when Americans were more protective of their now vanishing freedoms, there was sporadic opposition to the threatened outrage which a dictatorial central government sought to impose on every child in the United States. In 1909, the Senate of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts introduced Bill No. 8, an act to prohibit compulsory vaccine. Sec. 1. It shall be unlawful for any Board of Education, Board of Health, or any public board acting in this state, under political regulations or otherwise, to compel by resolution, order or proceedings of any kind, the vaccination of any child or person of any age, by making vaccination a condition precedent to the attending of any public or private school, either as pupil or teacher, no doubt this legislation was drafted by a physician who was well aware of the dangers of vaccination. Even in 1909, the medical monopoly was strong enough to bury this bill. It was never submitted for vote. 
However, the peril of even one state legislature foiling their criminal conspiracy caused the Rockefeller Syndicate to concentrate on perfecting an instrument for controlling each and every state legislature in these United States. This was achieved by setting up the Council of State Governments in Chicago. Its UKs is a routinely issued to every state legislator, and such is its totalitarian control that not one legislature has ever failed to follow its dictates. Edward Jenner discovered that cowpox vaccine would supposedly inoculate persons against the 18th century scourge of smallpox. In fact, smallpox was already on the wane, and some authorities believe it would have vanished by the end of the century, due to a number of contributing factors. After the use of cowpox vaccine became widespread in England, a smallpox epidemic broke out which killed 22,081 people. The smallpox epidemics became worse each year that the vaccine was used. In 1872, 44,480 people were killed by it. England finally banned the vaccine in 1948, despite the fact that it was one of the most widely heralded contributions which that country had made to modern medicine. This action came after many years of compulsory vaccination, during which period those who refused to submit to its dangers were hurried off to jail. Japan initiated compulsory vaccine in 1872. In 1892, there were 165,774 cases of smallpox there, which resulted in 29,979 deaths. Japan still enforces compulsory vaccination, however, since it is a militarily occupied nation, its present government can hardly be blamed for submitting to the Rockefeller medical monopoly. Germany also instituted compulsory vaccination. In 1939, this during the Nazi regime, the diphtheria rate increased astronomically to 150,000 cases. Norway, which never instituted compulsory vaccination, had only 50 cases during the same period. Polio has increased 700% in states which have compulsory vaccination. The much-quoted writer on medical problems, Maurice Beale, who for years edited his informative publication, Capsule News Digest, from Capitol Hill, offered a standing reward during the years from 1954 to 1960 of $30,000, which he would pay to anyone who could prove that the polio vaccine was not a killer and a fraud. There were no takers. Medical historians have finally come to the reluctant conclusion that the Great Flu epidemic of 1918 was solely attributable to the widespread use of vaccines. It was the first war in which vaccination was compulsory for all servicemen. The Boston Herald reported that 47 soldiers had been killed by vaccination in one month. As a result, the military hospitals were filled, not with wounded combat casualties, but with casualties of the vaccine. The epidemic was called the Spanish Influenza, a deliberately misleading appellation, which was intended to conceal its origin. This flu epidemic claimed 20 million victims, those who survived it were the ones who had refused the vaccine. In recent years, annual recurring epidemics of flu are called the Russian flu, for some reason, the Russians never protest, perhaps because the Rockefellers make regular trips to Moscow to lay down the party line. The perils of vaccination were already known. Plain Talk magazine notes that, during the Franco-Prussian War, every German soldier was vaccinated. The result was that 53,288 otherwise healthy men developed smallpox. 
The death rate was high. In what is now known as the Great Swine Flu Massacre, the President of the United States, Gerald Ford, was enlisted to persuade the public to undergo a national vaccination campaign. The moving force behind the scheme was a $135 million windfall profit for the major drug manufacturers. They had a swine flu vaccine which suspicious pig raisers had refused to touch, fearful it might wipe out the crop. The manufacturers had only tried to get $80 million from the swine breeders, balked in this sale, they turned to the other market, humans. The impetus for the national swine flu vaccine came directly from the disease control center in Atlanta, Georgia. Perhaps coincidentally, Jimmy Carter, a member of the Trilateral Commission, was then planning his presidential campaign in Georgia. The incumbent president, Gerald Ford, had all the advantages of a massive bureaucracy to aid him in his election campaign, while the ineffectual and little-known Jimmy Carter offered no serious threat in the election. Suddenly, out of Atlanta, came the Center of Disease Control plan for a national immunization campaign against swine flu. The fact that there was not a single known case of this flu in the United States did not deter the medical monopoly from their scheme. The swine breeders had been shocked by the demonstrations of the vaccine on a few pigs, which had collapsed and died. One can imagine the anxious conferences in the headquarters of the great drug firms, until one bright young man remarked, well, if the swine breeders won't inject it into their animals, our only other market is to inject it into people. The Ford-sponsored swine flu campaign almost died an early death, when a conscientious public servant, Dr. Anthony Morris, formerly of Hue and then active as director of the Virus Bureau at the Food and Drug Administration, declared that there could be no authentic swine flu vaccine, because there had never been any cases of swine flu on which they could test it. Dr. Morris then went public with his statement that, at no point were the swine flu vaccines effective. He was promptly fired, but the damage had been done. The damage control consisted of that great humanitarian, Walter Cronkite, and the President of the United States, combining their forces to come to the rescue of the medical monopoly. Walter Cronkite had President Ford appear on his news program to urge the American people to submit to the inoculation with the swine flu vaccine. CBS then or later could never find any reason to air any analysis or scientific critique of the swine flu vaccine, which was identified as containing many toxic poisons, including alien viral protein particles, formaldehyde, residues of chicken and egg embryo substances, sucrose, thimerosal, a derivative of poisonous mercury, polysorbate and some 80 other substances. Meanwhile, back at the virus laboratories, after Dr. Anthony Morris has been summarily fired, a special team of workers was rushed in to clean out the four rooms in which he had conducted his scientific tests. The laboratory was filled with animals whose records verified his claims, representing some three years of constant research. All of the animals were immediately destroyed, and Morris's records were burned. They did not go so far as to sow salt throughout the area, because they believed their job was done. On April 15, 1976, Congress passed Public Law 94-266, which provided $135 million of taxpayers' funds to pay for a national swine flu inoculation campaign. Hugh was to distribute the vaccine to state and local health agencies on a national basis for inoculation, at no charge. Insurance agencies then went public with their warning that they would not insure drug firms against possible suits from the results of swine flu inoculation, because no studies had been carried out which could predict its effects. 
it was to foil the insurance companies that CBS had Gerald Ford make his impassioned appeal to 215 million Americans to save themselves while there was still time, and to rush down to the friendly local health department and get the swine flu vaccination, at absolutely no charge. This may have been CBS' finest hour in its distinguished career of public service, hardly had the swine flu campaign been completed than the reports of the casualties began to pour in. Within a few months, claims totaling $1.3 billion had been filed by victims who had suffered paralysis from the swine flu vaccine. The medical authorities proved equal to the challenge, they leaped to the defense of the medical monopoly by labeling the new epidemic, Guillain-Barre syndrome, there have since been increasing speculations that the ensuing epidemic of AIDS which began shortly after Gerald Ford's public assurances, was merely a viral variation of the swine. Flu vaccine? And what of the perpetrator of the Great Swine Flu Massacre, President Gerald Ford? As the logical person to blame for the catastrophe, Ford had to endure a torrent of public criticism, which quite naturally resulted in his defeat for election. He had previously been appointed when the agents of the international drug operations had ushered Richard Nixon out of office. The unknown Jimmy Carter, familiar only to the supersecret fellow members in the Trilateral Commission, was swept into office by the outpouring of rage against Gerald Ford. Carter proved to be almost as serious a national disaster as the swine flu epidemic, while Gerald Ford was retired from politics to life. Not only did he lose the election, he was also sentenced to spend his remaining years trudging wearily up and down the hot sandy stretches of the Palm Springs golf course. At the annual ACS Science Writers Seminar, Dr. Robert W. Simpson, of Rutgers University, warned that immunization programs against flu, measles, mumps and polio may actually be seeding humans with RNA to form proviruses which will then become latent cells throughout the body, they can then become activated as a variety of diseases including lupus, cancer, rheumatism and arthritis. This was a remarkable verification of the earlier warning delivered by Dr. Herbert Snow of London more than 50 years earlier. He had observed that the long-term effects of the vaccine, lodging in the heart or other parts of the body, would eventually result in fatal damage to the heart. The vaccine becomes a time bomb in the system, festering as what are known as slow viruses, which may take 10 to 30 years to become virulent. When that time arrives, the victim is felled by a fatal onslaught, often with no prior warning, whether it is a heart attack or some other disease. Health Freedom News, in its July-August 1986 issue, noted that vaccine is linked to brain damage. 150 lawsuits pending against DPT vaccine manufacturers, seeking $1.5 billion damages, when the present writer was a teenager in Virginia, each summer became a nightmare for anxious parents, as epidemics of poliomyelitis, generally called infantile paralysis, swept the nation. Throughout the summer, we imbibed bottle after bottle of ice-cold soda pop to wash down our afternoon snacks of candy bars, with no inkling that we were preparing our systems for the breeding of the polio virus. The most famous victim of polio was the governor of New York, Franklin D. Roosevelt. In 1931, during the annual polio epidemic, Roosevelt officially endorsed a so-called immune serum, a precursor of the polio vaccines of the 1950s. It was sponsored by Dr. Lindsley R. Williams, the son-in-law of the managing partner of the investment bankers, Kidder Peabody. The Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations had urged the building of a new medical edifice to be called the New York Academy of Medicine. 
As was often the case, they did not provide the funds, but planned the staging campaign whereby the public was induced to contribute millions of dollars for it. Dr. Williams was then appointed director of this academy, despite the fact that his medical abilities were a joke in New York. Williams used this post to become the apostle of socialized medicine in the United States, a goal which the Rockefeller medical monopoly ardently desired, and which was finally achieved when the Medicare program was adopted many years later. In reality, as Dr. Emanuel Josephson pointed out, Williams stood for the political and commercial domination of the medical profession under a socialized system. Roosevelt then announced his candidacy for the presidency of the United States, a post for which he seemed physically disqualified. Because of his handicap, he had been unable to stand or walk for many years. He conducted his business from a wheelchair. It seemed incredible that he would be able to wage a national campaign for the office of president. To allay these doubts, Dr. Williams wrote an article which was published in Collier's Magazine, the second largest magazine in the United States at that time. In this article, Dr. Williams certified that Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt was physically and mentally fit to be president of the United States. It was then bruited about that a new cabinet post, Secretary of Health, was to be created especially for Dr. Williams in an upcoming Roosevelt administration. The immune serum against polio was known to be dangerous and worthless when Roosevelt endorsed it. The National Health Institute of the U.S. Public Health Service had experimented with monkeys for three years, using this identical serum. The institute stated that a study of the serum had been made on the recommendation of Dr. Simon Flexner, the head of the institute. The serum was then used, and many children died from it. The New York State Commissioner of Health, Dr. Thomas Parron, who was later appointed Surgeon General of the United States, who owed his appointment to Dr. Williams' recommendation to Governor Roosevelt, refused to hold hearings to validate the serum, while Roosevelt continued to reap the rewards of charity from his Warm Springs Foundation and his annual birthday ball celebrating the polio epidemic. In 1948, a Dr. Sandia, who was then serving as nutritional expert at the U.S. Veterans Administration Hospital in Oteen, North Carolina, became alarmed at the enormous amounts of heavily sugared drinks, candy and other sweets which were being consumed by children during the hot summer months, at the same time that the polio became epidemic each year. He conducted tests which led him to the conclusion that the children's consumption of sugar had a direct relation to the virulence of the polio outbreaks. He then issued an urgent warning to parents to ban consumption of any refined sugar product, particularly candy, soft drinks and ice cream during the summer months. The result of Dr. Sandler's campaign was that the number of polio cases dropped in North Carolina 90% in a single year, from 2,498 in 1948 to only 229 in 1949. Aroused by the effect that Dr. Sandler's warning campaign had had on the summer sales in North Carolina, the soft drink distributors and the candy manufacturers came in the following year with a statewide promotional campaign, featuring free samples and other promotions. By 1950, the polio toll had risen once more to its 1948 level. What happened to Dr. Sandia? A study of North Carolina publications shows no further mention of him or his program. Herbert M. Shelton wrote in 1938 in his book, Exploitation of Human Suffering, that, vaccine is pus, either septic or inert, if inert it will not take, if septic it produces infection. 
This explains why some children have to go back and receive a second inoculation, because the first one did not take, it was not sufficiently poisonous, and did not infect the body. Shelton says that the inoculations cause sleeping sickness, infantile paralysis, hemoplagia or tetanus. The Surgeon General of the United States, Leonard Scheel, pointed out to the annual armor convention in 1955 that no batch of vaccine can be proven safe before it is given to children. James R. Shannon of the National Institute of Health declared that the only safe vaccine is a vaccine that is never used. With the advent of Dr. Jonas Salk's polio vaccine in the 1950s, American parents were assured that the problem had been solved and that their children were now safe. The ensuing suits against the drug manufacturers received little publicity. David V. Wyeth Labs, a suit involving type 3 Sabin polio vaccine, was judged in favor of the plaintiff, David. A suit against Ledley Lab involving Oromune vaccine was settled in 1962 for $10,000. In two cases involving Park Davis's Quadrigan, the product was found to be defective. In 1962, Park Davis halted all production of Quadrigan. The medical loaner, Dr. William Koch, declared that the injection of any serum, vaccine, or even penicillin has shown a very marked increase in the incidence of polio, at least by 400%. The Center for Disease Control stayed out of sight for some time after the Great Swine Flu Massacre, only to emerge more stridently than ever with a new national scare program on the dangers of another plague, which was named Legionnaire's Disease, after an outbreak at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel in Philadelphia. Apparently this virus multiplied in the air conditioning and heating systems of some older hotels in large cities, probably because the vents were never cleaned. In a few isolated instances, it caused death to those who were afflicted. For some reason, these victims were usually elderly legionnaires, who had attended a gathering at one of these hotels. As the older hotels were gradually replaced by new, more modern motels, Legionnaire's disease quietly faded away, without the disease control center being able to bring off another $135 million coup for the Rockefeller medical monopoly. Polio vaccination has now been accepted as a fact of life by the American public, which derives considerable comfort from the gradual disappearance of the annual scare campaign at the beginning of each summer. However, the Washington Post of January 26, 1988 featured a story which created some puzzling afterthoughts. It was announced at a national conference held in Washington that all cases of polio since 1979 had been caused by the polio vaccine. We quote, in fact, all the cases in America come from the vaccine. The naturally occurring or wild-type polio virus has not been shown to cause a single case of polio in the United States since 1979. It was to confront this unpleasant fact that the Institute of Medicine, under contract to the U.S. Public Health Service, had convened a committee in Washington to review the current use of polio vaccine. You thought they would vote to discontinue it, perhaps. This would be a logical conclusion. Unfortunately, logic plays no part in such deliberations. The Post reported that no radical change is expected. The status quo is very appealing, said conference chairman Dr. Frederick Robbins, of Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. This story raises more questions than it answers. It also reveals the wide gap between the medical mind and that of the layman.
A layman would say, if all cases of polio in the United States since 1979 have been caused by the polio vaccine, isn't this a good reason for discontinuing? Such reasoning is always called simplistic by our overeducated professionals. After all, one has to think of the national economy, and of drug manufacturers geared up to the continuous production of a vaccine for an epidemic which has disappeared. Think of the unemployment, and the diminution of dividends to the holders of stock in the drug trust. After all, most of their income is donated to charity. If you cannot see the logic of this reasoning, you will never get a job with the US Public Health Service. Chapter 5 Fluoridation The second item on Dr. Robert Mendelssohn's list of the four holy waters of the modern church of medicine is the fluoridation of the nation's drinking water. Although Dr. Mendelssohn dismisses it too, as of questionable value, few dare to question it. We are told that it confers untold benefits to the rising generation, guaranteeing them perpetual freedom from tooth decay and no need for any dental work. Surprisingly enough, the national fluoridation campaign is enthusiastically supported by the nation's dental profession, even though it might be expected that it would put them out of business. Here again, those in the know are well aware that the fluoridation program, far from threatening to put the dentists out of business, actually will offer them plenty of work in the future. The principal source of the fluoridation is a poisonous chemical, sodium fluoride, which has long been the principal ingredient of rat poison. Whether the adding of this compound to our drinking water is also part of a rat control program has never been publicly discussed. The EPA released its latest estimate, that 38 million Americans are now drinking unsafe water, which contains unsafe levels of chlorine, lead and other toxic substances. Fluoride is not listed as one of the toxic substances. EPA, like other government agencies, has carefully refrained from either testing public drinking water for the effects of fluoridation, or from poaching on the preserves of the Rockefeller monopoly, which launched the national fluoridation campaign. The byproduct of the manufacture of aluminum, sodium fluoride, had long posed a problem. Except for its limited use as a rat poison, other popular uses were limited by its extremely poisonous nature. It also was very expensive for the aluminum companies to dispose of, because of its persistence, it does not degrade, it is also cumulative in the body, so that each day you add a little more to your sodium fluoride reserves each time you drink a glass of water. It is puzzling, then, to find that the historical record shows that the principal sponsor and promoter of the fluoridation of the nation's drinking water was the US Public Health Service and thereby hangs a tale. We may recall the heady days of the 1950s, when public health officials were routinely sent out from Washington to appear at meetings where communities were anxiously debating the pros and cons of water fluoridation. Without exception, these public servants not only reassured the anxious citizens, they positively demanded that the communities fluoridate then drinking water. Although they unequivocally endorsed the fluoridation of water supplies, not one of these public health officials had ever conducted any studies of fluoridated water, or made any experiments as to its possible benefits or dangers. Yet at meeting after meeting throughout the United States, they rose to solemnly guarantee that there were no dangers, no side effects, only positive benefits on children under the age of 12. 
Fluoridation, even according to its most enthusiastic supporters, confers no benefits on anyone older than 12. No sensible reason has ever been advanced as to why all water supplies should be fluoridated, in order to benefit a minority of the population. Did these public servants know what they were doing? Of course not. They were following a tradition of the bureaucracy, which takes its orders from the medical monopoly. How did they get these orders? That too, is an interesting story, asterisk the head of the US Public Health Service during the entire fluoridation campaign was one Oscar Ewing. A graduate of Harvard Law School, Ewing was an airplane contractor during the First World War. He then joined the influential law firm of Sherman, Hughes and Dwight, a prestigious Wall Street company. The Hughes was none other than Charles Evans Hughes, the recent candidate for the presidency of the United States. Hughes lost his campaign against Woodrow Wilson because Wilson campaigned on his record that he kept us out of the war. As soon as he was safely re-elected, Wilson declared war. Hughes later became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The firm was then Ewing and Hughes. At the end of World War II, Ewing had himself appointed a special prosecutor for the Department of Justice. The appointment was made solely to conduct two prosecutions for the Rockefeller monopoly, the government's cases against two radio broadcasters, William Dudley Pelly and Robert Best. Both of these writers, longtime activists in America first, had campaigned to keep the United States out of what had turned out to be a very profitable war. They now had to be punished for the threat to the monopolists. Ewing had them both convicted and sent to prison. For this service, he was then appointed chairman of the Democratic National Committee. The following year, in 1946, President Truman appointed him head of the Federal Security Agency. In this capacity, he was in nominal charge of another radio broadcaster, Ezra Pound, who was being held as a political prisoner at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, a federal mental institution which was also part of the Federal Security Agency's network. Pound was held for more than 13 years without trial. Long after Ewing had gone, the government dropped all charges against Pound, and he was freed. Asterisk the US Public Health Service continues to propagandize, at taxpayers' expense, for expansion of fluoridation. The Washington Post noted on April 20, 1988 that the Public Health Service estimates that each year $2 billion is saved through water fluoridation. Our Public Health Service demurs on any statistical substantiation for this claim. Do the Public Health Service officials imply that the aluminum manufacturers save $2 billion a year through fluoridation of water? However, Ewing had not been appointed administrator of the Federal Security Agency merely to prosecute Ezra Pound. There were more serious goals in view. Congressman Miller charged that Ewing had been paid a $750,000 fee to leave his profitable Wall Street practice and head the Federal Security Agency. This fee had been paid by the Rockefeller interests. The purpose was to pursue a national fluoridation campaign. Ewing was made head of the Federal Security Agency because this position made him the most powerful bureaucrat in Washington. This agency encompassed the U.S. Public Health Service, the Social Security Administration, and the Office of Education. 
As head of the FSA, he was in charge of the vast government post-war spending programs, the federal health, education and welfare programs. From this post, Ewing campaigned for greater government control over the citizens of the United States. He was particularly anxious to increase control of medical education, a prime goal of the Rockefeller interests since 1898. On February 17, 1948, Ewing publicly called for government grants for medical scholarships, and demanded that medical schools be operated under government subsidies, with the inevitable accompanying control. On March 30, 1948, Ewing chaired a children's conference, which was intended to coordinate all federal agencies which had any dealing with the nation's youth. He also became the national leader of a campaign against cancer, a result of his long association with the Drug Trust. He had been secretary of the giant Merck Drug Company from his offices at 1 Wall Street. One of Ewing's first moves as head of the Public Health Service was to throw out the longtime Surgeon General, Thomas Parron, replacing him with a Ewing crony, Dr. Leonard Scheele from the National Cancer Institute. In 1948, Ewing joined with the American Cancer Society in a national campaign against cancer, a flagrant attempt to force Congress to spend more on various cancer boondoggles than the then modest expenditure of $14.5 million a year. On May 1, 1948, Ewing convened a national health convention in Washington, with some 800 delegates in attendance. The convention overwhelmingly approved Ewing's plea to enroll the United States in the United Nations World Health Organization. Ewing also campaigned vigorously for national health insurance, or socialized medicine, but despite his great power in Washington, he was unable to overcome the continued opposition of Morris Fishbein and the American Medical Association. He then issued an official report from the Federal Security Agency, The Nation's Health, a 186-page report which called for a crash 10-year program to achieve his goal of socialized medicine in the United States. The climax of his political power came when he masterminded Harry Truman's successful campaign for election to the presidency in 1948. Truman had previously succeeded as heir apparent after the strange death of Franklin D. Roosevelt. See Dr. Emanuel Josephson's book with that title. Ewing had already single-handedly obtained the naming of Truman as the vice presidential campaign in the 1944 Chicago Convention. He could be said to have put Truman in the White House as certainly as Bobst was later to put in Richard Nixon. The 1948 election of Truman guaranteed Ewing that he could have anything he wanted in Washington. What he wanted, and what he had been paid to bring about, was the national fluoridation of our drinking water. Oscar Ewing is a name totally unknown to Americans today. He left no monuments, because he was the 20th century epitome of the ruthless, dedicated Soviet style of bureaucrat, answerable only to his masters, and contemptuous of the faceless masses over whom he exercised dictatorial powers. He wielded absolute control over the most important components of the new socialist bureaucracy which Roosevelt had built up in Washington, and he prepared these offices for cabinet status. Of his many bureaucratic mandates, perhaps none has had a more direct effect on all Americans than the fluoridation of our water supply. Congressman Miller stated that the chief supporter of the fluoridation of water is the U.S. Public Health Service. This is part of Mr. Ewing's Federal Security Agency. Mr. Ewing is one of the highly paid lawyers for the Aluminum Company of America. It was hardly accidental that Washington, D.C., where Oscar Ewing was king, was one of the first large American cities to fluoridate its water supply. 
At the same time, congressmen and other politicians in Washington were privately alerted by Ewing's minions that they should be careful about ingesting the fluoridated water. Supplies of bottled water from Mountain Springs then appeared in every office on Capitol Hill, these have been maintained continuously ever since, at the taxpayer's expense. One senator, who went so far as to carry a small flask of spring water with him when he dined at Washington's most fashionable restaurants, assuring his dinner companions that, not one drop of fluoridated water will ever pass my lips, such are the guardians of our nation. Even without such government additives as chlorine and fluorine, water itself may pose a serious threat to health. American pioneers often came down with an illness which they called, milk sickness, which seems to have come from their water. Dr. N. M. Walker warns that in the average 70-year lifespan, the system ingests about 4,500 gallons of water containing some 300 pounds of lime. This intake of lime gradually ossifies the skeletal structure. In 1845, an English physician warned of the peril of ossification from drinking natural or spring water. When Congressman Miller reported on the floor of Congress that Oscar Ewing was promoting fluoridation because he had been the lawyer for the Aluminum Company of America, Alcoa, and that he had accepted a $750,000 fee to persuade him to undertake this program of government service, one would have thought that this public exposure of Ewing's motives would have shamed him, and perhaps influence him to step aside and let someone else take over the U.S. Public Health Service campaign to force fluoridation on the American people. This would underestimate the arrogance and the self-assurance of the 20th century bureaucrat. He ignored Congressman Miller's remarks and redoubled the pressure of the U.S. Public Health Service to put over fluoridation. He had the willing support of his underlings because the U.S. Public Health Service has never been in the service of the public. On the contrary, its officials have always been at the beck and call of the drug trust, pushing the latest fads from the medical monopoly, and maintaining those ideals of public service which have purchased so many fine estates in the fashionable Leesburg suburban area for those who have been in the right place at the right time. Political power is translated into money, money for those who use political goals for sale. After overseeing the installation of sodium fluoride equipment in most of the nation's large cities, an interest in which Chase Manhattan Bank showed a crucial concern, Oscar Ewing retired to Chapel Hill, N.C. in 1953. Here he busied himself with building a 7,800-acre complex of office buildings under the name of the Research Triangle Corporation, triangle being a key Masonic symbol. These offices were promptly leased to a melange of federal and state agencies, many of which, not surprisingly, he had previously done business with when he was the boss in Washington. A former head of the Democratic National Committee usually has no difficulty in renting space to government agencies. Ewing's former law partner, Charles Evans Hughes Jr., became Solicitor General of the United States, while his father was still Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He later became a director of New York Life Insurance Co., a J.P. Morgan-controlled firm, whose office was at 1 Wall Street. This had also been Oscar Ewing's former business address. Fluorides have long been a source of contamination in the United States. Large quantities of this chemical are also produced by the giant chemical firms, American Agricultural Products Corporation, and Hooker Chemical. Hooker Chemical became part of the Rockefeller Network when Blanchett Hooker married into the Rockefeller family by marrying John D. Rockefeller III. 
The Florida plant of American Agricultural produces enormous waste quantities of fluorides in preparing fertilizer from phosphate rock. Some of the fluoride wastes had been used in pesticides, until the Department of Agriculture banned their use as being too dangerous to the public. The wastes were then dumped into the ocean, despite specific Department of Agriculture rulings prohibiting it. Hooker Chemical is known to most Americans for the life-threatening chemical wastes found at Love Canal. Studies by the National Academy of Science show that United States industries such as Hooker Chemical pump 100,000 tons of fluorides into the atmosphere each year, they pipe another 500,000 tons of fluorides into the nation's water supply each year, this is in addition to the amount of fluorides used in treating our drinking water. This scientific report further analyzes the effects of these fluorides on the human system. Its most dangerous effect is that it slows down the vitally important DNA repair enzyme activity of the immune system. Fluorides have this effect even in concentrations as low as one part per million, the standard dosage which the US Public Health Service set for our drinking water. At this concentration, fluorides are shown to cause serious chromosomal damage. The one part per million recommended by our conscientious public servants has also been shown in laboratory experiments to transform normal cells into cancer cells. American Academy of Science studies in 1963 showed that these low levels of fluorides resulted in a marked increase in melanotic tumors, from 12% to 100% in experimental laboratory animals. It also caused interference with the body's production of important neurotransmitters, and lowered their level in the brain. These neurotransmitters have the vital function of protecting against seizures, thus opening the possibility of major increases in strokes and brain damage because of the fluorides in water. Lesser effects of fluorides which have been noted in laboratory tests are sudden mood changes, severe headaches, nausea, hallucinations, irregular breathing, night twitching, damage to fetuses, and various forms of cancer. Government objections to these laboratory findings were raised by the quintessential bureaucrat, Dr. Frank J. Rauscher, the director of the National Cancer Institute, when he claimed that scientists within and without the National Cancer Program have found again that the fluoridation of drinking water does not contribute to a cancer burden for people. This claim, for which he offered no scientific verification, was sharply contested by a longtime scholar of the fluoridation controversy, Dr. John Yermuyanis, Dean Burke and other scientists. In his authoritative work, Fluoride, the Aging Factor, which has never been refuted by any scientific study, Dr. Yermuyanis finds that from 30,000 to 50,000 deaths a year are directly traceable to fluoridation, from 10 to 20,000 of these deaths being from fluoride-induced cancers. Although some communities have since revoked their agreements to allow fluoridation of their public drinking water supplies, the national campaign continues unabated. No government official has ever admitted that there might be dangers associated with the Ewing bribe which resulted in the fluoridation of the nation's drinking water. West Germany banned fluoridation November 18, 1971, which was surprising because this is a militarily occupied nation, which is run by the top-secret German Marshall Fund and the John J. McCloy Foundation. Apparently they could no longer silence the German scientists who have proved that fluoridation is a deadly threat to the population. Sweden followed West Germany in banning fluoridation, and the Netherlands officially banned it on June 22, 1973, by order of their highest court. 
it is of some interest to contemplate the process by which the government bureaucrats arrived at the recommended dosage for fluoridating public drinking water, that is, one part per million. Extensive studies must have been made, deliberations gone over by distinguished scientists over a period of years, before it was finally determined that this was the correct dosage. In fact, no such studies were ever made. Apparently the figure of one part per million was selected arbitrarily. It was known that 10 parts per million was much too strong. After several years of using the one part per million dosage, government bureaucrats realized that they had made a terrible mistake. The dosage was at least twice as strong as it should have been. The death rates among elderly people from kidney and heart disease began to rise steadily in the first cities to begin fluoridating their water. One critic believes this was a deliberate decision, the final solution to the problem of social security payments. When scientists found that one part per million dosage of fluoridation transforms normal cells into cancerous cells, the fluoridation program should have been halted immediately. The government agencies realized that if they did so, they would open the door for thousands of lawsuits against the government. Therefore, the stealthy poisoning of our older generation continues. Oscar Ewing himself, when he was given several dosages to choose from, from a high of 10 parts per million to a low of 0.5 parts per million, thought he was being safe in selecting a dosage in the lower range. It turned out that he was wrong. The medical monopoly, perhaps because it is profiting from the steady increase in deaths among the elderly from drinking fluoridated water, refuses to yield on this question. Fluoridation remains one of the four holy waters of the Church of Modem Medicine. Ewing and his minions were also aware of Soviet studies showing that fluorides were extremely important in introducing a docile, sheep-like obedience in the general population. It was well known that for years, breeders of purebred bulls had used doses of fluorides to calm their more intractable bulls, making them much safer to handle. The Soviet Union maintained its concentration camps since 1940 by administering increasing dosages of fluorides to the prison population in its vast empire, the Gulag Archipelago, the largest network of concentration camps in the world, and the envy of every bureaucrat in Washington. American totalitarian, alike in every way to their Soviet counterparts, also want all dissension stifled, all resistance ended, and a slave population which pays ever-increasing amounts of taxes while having no voice in their own government. The fluoridation campaign has been an important step towards this goal. It may yet prove to have been the crucial step in the complete Sovietization of America. We know that during recent years, the American people have been afflicted with a strange passivity, ignoring each new outrage inflicted upon them by the ravenous federal agents who descend upon their private property in hordes, brandishing automatic weapons which they have no need of using, herding the frightened victims into pens, and degrading them in a manner which no American ever thought to see. This passivity and unwillingness to challenge any authority is merely the first achievement of the fluoridation campaign. This is its initial effect upon the central nervous system. Unfortunately, the further deadly effects upon the kidneys, the cumulative effect on the heart and other organs, as well as the widespread development of new and fast-spreading cancer, is yet to come. To hasten this cherished objective, not only are American children being given fluoridated water, they also are told to brush their teeth at least three times a day with heavily fluoridated toothpaste, which contains 7% of sodium fluoride. 
Studies show that children habitually ingest about 10% of this solution during each brushing, giving them a daily dose of 30% of the 7% solution in the toothpaste. No doubt this will hasten the Soviet objective. To combat this outrage, one entrepreneur plans to soon market a non-fluoridated toothpaste, which will be called Morgan's Guarantee Toothpaste. You can trust our guarantee that this toothpaste contains no harmful fluorides. The source of much of this substance is the Aluminum Company of America, a $5 billion a year enterprise. Its present chairman is Charles W. Parry, a director of the supposedly right-wing think tank, American Enterprise Institute, of which Jean Kirkpatrick is the most highly touted member, and principal ornament. The former chairman and still director, of Alcoa, William H. Chrome George, is an active director of the well-publicized United States USSR Trade and Economic Council, which is intended to rescue the Soviet Union from economic oblivion. George is also a director of a number of leading defense companies such as TRW, Todd Shipyards, International Paper, and the Norfolk and Southern Railway. ALCOA's president is William B. Renner, who is a director of the Shell Oil Company, a firm now controlled by the Rothschild interests. Other directors of Alcoa are William S. Cook, chairman of the Union Pacific Railroad, the base of the Harriman Fortune, Alan Greenspan, now chairman of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, whose action in raising the interest rate a few days after he took office precipitated Black Monday, the worst stock market crash in American history. Greenspan's name is not familiar to most Americans, although it should be, he was the chairman of a special commission on social security, which finagled a horrendous increase in the amount of withholding tax on every working American. Greenspan was able to do this because he was a highly paid Wall Street consultant, meaning that he could juggle figures to come up with whatever result the Rockefeller monopoly desired. He conducted a specious campaign to persuade the American people that the Social Security program was bankrupt, when in fact it had reserve funds of $22 billion, plus $25 billion which Congress had borrowed directly from the system, and which was a collectible asset. Greenspan also based his demand for a huge increase in the withholding tax, which was nothing but a tax, on a projected 9.6% increase in the inflation rate, when in fact it was only a 3.5% increase. The alarmed public, frightened by President Reagan's absurd claims that the principal beneficiaries of the social security system were the idle rich, was hoodwinked into dropping its objections to the increase in tax. However, actual figures on hand at that time showed that only 3% of the elderly had incomes above $50,000 a year, which in itself was hardly a princely sum in these days of inflation, an inflation which itself was largely created by the government's fiscal policies. Greenspan was the star of the Great Social Security Crisis of 1983, shrewdly capitalizing on the propaganda barrage that the social security system was rapidly going broke. His first finding was that Social Security funds would be in the red from $150 to $200 billion by 1990, at the same time, he was telling his high-paying corporate clients it would be only one-third of that sum. The final increase was what he had told his clients. He also forecast that the consumer price index would rise to 9.2% by 1985, at the same time, he was informing his corporate clients it would be only one-third of that figure. The actual increase was 3.6%. This performance earned Greenspan a prestigious position as partner of J.P. Morgan Company. He is now chairman of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors.
The New Republic defined the function of this body on January 25, 1988 stating plainly, the Federal Reserve Board protects the interests of the rich, no one has yet challenged that statement. Greenspan is also a director of the giant media conglomerate, Capital Cities ABC Network, as well as being a trustee of the reputedly right-wing think tank, Hoover Institution, which furnished the powerhouse behind the Reagan Revolution, and which is dominated by the Trotskyite League for Industrial Democracy, a Rockefeller-funded agitprop group. The vice chairman of Alcoa is Forrest Shumway, who is also a director of Transamerica, Ampex Corporation, Garrett Corporation, Mack Trucks, The Wix Companies, Gold West Broadcasters, United California Bank, and Natomas, Inc., a heady mix of banking interests, heavy industry, and media holdings, which is typical of the monopolists today, they have found the best modus operandi is to control the media, banking and defense industries in a giant combine. Other directors of Alcoa are Paul H. O'Neill, who is a member of the influential Board of Visitors at Harvard University, President of International Paper, and Director of the National Westminster Bank, one of England's Big Five. O'Neill was Chief of Human Resources for the U.S. government from 1971 to 77. Paul H. Miller, Senior Advisor to the prestigious First Boston Investment Group, Director of Selenese Corporation, Cummins Engine, Congolium Corporation, Siemens Bank for Savings, New York and Ogilvy & Mather, Inc., one of the nation's leading advertising firms, Franklin H. Thomas, the token black who was U.S. attorney for New York, and then was named head of the Ford Foundation. He is also a director of Citicorp, Citibank, Allied Stores and Cummins Engine, Sir R.V. Parbo, an Australian tycoon who is chairman of the Western Mining Company. He is also director of Zurich Insurance, the second largest firm in Switzerland, Munich Reinsurance, and Chase Manhattan Bank, Nathan Pierce who for many years has been the financial guardian of the Mellon family, handling their major investments, John P. Diesel, president of the giant conglomerate Tenneco, he is also a director of U.S. USSR Trade and Economic Council with Armand Hammer, and director of First City Bancorp, one of the three Rothschild banks in the United States, John D. Harper, director of Paribas New York, Metropolitan Life and chairman of Coke Enterprises and other fuel companies, John A. Mayer, director of H.J. Hines Company, the Mellon Bank and Norfolk and Western Railway, his son, John Jr., is general manager of the Morgan Stanley Bankers in England, and vice president of Morgan Guarantee International. Thus we see that the origin of the sodium fluoride controversy stems from close allies of the Chase Manhattan banks and other Rockefeller interests. The operation of the Aluminum Trust has given rise to a new epidemic in the United States. Two and one-half million Americans are currently afflicted with a strange, incurable disease called Alzheimer's disease. Its victims now require more than $50 billion worth of medical care each year, and the prognosis always grows darker, due to the progressive nature of this illness. It strikes the neurotransmitters of the brain, which, as has already been noted, are adversely affected by fluoride, however, the principal agent seems to be the accumulation of aluminum deposits on the principal nerves of the brain. About 70% of the costs of this illness is borne by the families of the afflicted, because most Medicare and private health insurance programs refuse to pay it. 
The medical monopoly has been frantically trying to find some other agent in this disease, spending millions to study such factors as genetic predisposition, slow virus, environmental toxins, and immunologic changes, despite the fact that its origins have been traced to the large amounts of aluminum which most Americans began ingesting with their food since the 1920s. Alzheimer's is now causing more than 100,000 deaths annually, and is the fourth leading cause of adult death in the United States, yet, significantly, there has been no national foundation such as the American Cancer Society or the Arthritis Foundation to investigate its causes, because the medical monopoly already knows the answer. Alzheimer's growing incidence was at first dismissed as growing old, later it was diagnosed as premature senility, it often strikes in the mid-50s. These were the men and women who had grown up in America during the 1920s, a period when the traditional cast iron and earthenware cooking vessels were almost universally replaced by the more modern, and seemingly more convenient, aluminum cookware. The present writer's parents both grew up on farms in rural areas of Virginia. Their food, almost entirely homegrown, was prepared in iron pots over wood-fueled cookstoves. Those Americans born after 1920 had their food prepared in aluminum pots, which were usually heated over gas flames, later electric. This writer's mother often remarked that food cooked over gas flame never tasted like food cooked over wood fires. The reason is that the combustion of poisonous fuel inevitably releases some toxins into the air, and into the food. Electric heat is also said to materially affect food, because of the electric vibrations given off by the heat. By the 1930s, American housewives had learned that it was potentially dangerous to leave many foods in aluminum pots for more than a few minutes. Greens, tomatoes, and other vegetables, were known to discolor and became poisonous in a short time. Tomatoes could actually pit and corrode the interior of the aluminum pots in a short time, many foods turned the pots black. Strangely enough, no one took these obvious warning signs as an indication that cooking food in aluminum pots even for a few minutes might produce unfortunate results. It is now known that cooking any food in an aluminum pot, particularly with fluoridated water, quickly forms a highly poisonous compound. Dr. McGuigan's testimony in a famous court hearing on aluminum effects, the Royal Baking Powder case, revealed that extensive research had shown that boiling water in aluminum pots produced hydroxide poisons, boiling vegetables in aluminum also produced a hydroxide poison, boiling an egg in aluminum produced a phosphate poison, boiling meat in an aluminum pot produced a chloride poison. Any food cooked in aluminum containers would neutralize the digestive juices, produce acidosis, and ulcers. Perhaps the use of aluminum pots produced the widespread indigestion in America, which then necessitated the ingesting of large amounts of antacids containing even more aluminum. After consuming food cooked in aluminum pots over a period from 20 to 40 years, many Americans began to experience serious memory loss, their mental capacities then deteriorated rapidly, until they were totally unable to fend for themselves or to recognize their spouses of many years. It was then found that concentrations of aluminum in certain areas of the brain had caused permanent deterioration of brain cells and nerve connections, the damage was not only incurable, it was also progressive and not responsive to any known treatment. This epidemic was soon known as Alzheimer's disease. 7% of all Americans over 65 have now been diagnosed as having this disease. Many others have not been diagnosed, they are simply dismissed as senile, incompetent or mentally ill. 
Dr. Michael Weiner and other physicians have found that the epidemic has been caused, not only by the aluminum cookware, but by the daily increasing ingestion of aluminum from many products in common household usage. The insatiable marketers of aluminum have annually expanded its use in many products, whose consumers have no idea that they are ingesting any type of aluminum. Women's douches now contain solutions of aluminum, which introduces it directly into the system. The most widely used painkillers such as buffered aspirin contain impressive quantities of aluminum. Ascriptin A, D, Rora has 44 mg of aluminum per tablet. Karma, Dorsey has 44 mg of aluminum per tablet. However, the largest single source of aluminum occurs with the daily ingestion of widely prescribed and non-prescription antacid products for stomach upsets. Amphoil Wyeth, has 174 mg per dose of aluminum hydroxide, Altenagel Stewart, has 174 mg of aluminum hydroxide per dose, Delsid Merrill National 174 mg aluminum per dose, Estomol M Riker 265 mg of aluminum per dose, Mylanta 2 Stewart 116 mg aluminum per dose. A study of current victims of Alzheimer's would probably find that most of them, on their physician's advice, had been ingesting large amounts of these antacids daily for years. Non-prescription antidiarrheal drugs also contain significant amounts of aluminum. Esalad Central has 370 mg of aluminum salts per milliliter. Calpectate Concentrate Upjohn has 290 mg aluminum per milliliter. Aluminum ammonium sulfate is widely used as a buffer and neutralizing agent by manufacturers of cereals and baking powder. Aluminum potassium sulfate, known as aluminum flour or aluminum meal, is widely used in baking powder and clarifying sugar. The annual use of sodium aluminum phosphate has now reached the amount of 19 million kilograms per year. It is used in large amounts in cake mixes, frozen dough, self-rising flour, and processed foods, in an average amount per product of from 3 to 3 and 1 half percent. Some 300,000 kg of sodium aluminum sulfates are used in household baking powders each year, averaging from 21 to 26 percent of the bulk of these products. Aluminum wrap is now everywhere, toothpaste is packaged in tubes lined with aluminum, there are aluminum seals on many food and drink products, and soft drinks everywhere are now packaged in aluminum cans. While the amount of aluminum ingested on any given day from all of these sources may be infinitesimal, the parade of products coated with or mixed with aluminum available on a daily basis is frightening. Its effects are the equivalent to that of a slow virus, as the metal accumulates at vital points in the system, particularly in the human brain. Thus the number of Alzheimer's victims is probably outnumbered by the number of potential victims, who will later be afflicted with its terrible symptoms. You're listening to the Fact Hunter Radio Network. Here is your host. George Hobbs. And there you go, folks. That will conclude chapters four and five tomorrow. We'll be uh, playing chapters six and seven, discussing AIDS and the action of fertilizers. That's going to wrap it up for today. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the show and it's given you an alternative perspective on things. Until next time, I'm the Fact Hunter George Hobbs. Keep your head on a swivel and we will see ya. Living on the far side of town Sharing a dream with anyone 
to the Fact Hunter Radio Network. Just the facts, ma'am. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.